Good, so a very warm welcome to everybody to the uh, third meeting of this academic year of the um, Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure for me to introduce John Heal. He's well known to all of us. He's held positions at Washington University and Monash University, in the latter case as an honorary research associate, and in each case for about a decade or so. He's also well known as editor of the Journal of the American Philosophical Association, and his interests range very widely, but they centrally include some of the most basic questions in metaphysics, which he often approaches in the light of his extensive historical knowledge. And this is clearly illustrated in his 2012 book, The Universe As We Find It. It's also illustrated clearly by tonight's paper, which is entitled Aristotelian supervenience. Uh, before I hand over to John, just a reminder of the format of these meetings, um, John will speak for between 45 minutes and an hour, will then take uh, a brief tea break for five minutes or so, and then there will be an opportunity for people to ask questions. So without any further ado, I hand over to John. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I. I'm going to read my paper because I may not be coherent otherwise. There is a handout that mainly has quotations on it. On the back of the handout are the references to the quotations, if anybody is interested in tracking them down. The first four little quotations are just things that I have at the head of the paper, just little things for people to reflect on. The others are, th are ones that uh, I will be discussing in, um, in detail. We routinely judge that something is possible or not, that something might have occurred or failed to occur, that were something to happen, something else would happen. The emphasized terms express modal concepts. We deploy such concepts extensively and unselfconsciously. In so doing, we seem often to express truths, modal truths. It is true, for instance, that were you to drop this fragile vase, it would shatter. It's true that you and I might not have existed. But if such assertions are true, it is fair to ask what makes them true, to ask what the truth makers might be for these and other modal assertions. In what follows, I shall discuss modality and modal truths from two contrasting perspectives. I begin with an influential conception of modal discourse promoted by David Lewis. Lewis's conception stems from a non-negotiable Humean starting point. A picture of the universe is altogether lacking metaphysical connections among distinct existences. Such a universe would seem to want the resources needed to make modal truths true. In response to this deficit, Lewis introduces the apparatus of possible worlds, or as I prefer, alternative universes. One of the things that I think it's important in understanding Lewis was that the Humeanism was a metaphysical position that was, non I believe, non-negotiable with Lewis. That was his fundamental starting point. And I want to say something about the history of that, where that comes from in the course of my talk. Uh, you might think that, uh, so the possible worlds are brought in to supplement uh, the Humean picture. 
You might think that Lewis intends these alternative universes to provide truthmakers for more modal assertions. Modal truths concerning our universe are made true by goings on in other universes, which seems kind of silly, actually. But it is unlikely that this is the best way to understand Lewis, however. Rather, truthmakers for modal truths generally are to be found here in our universe, the universe. Applica appreciation of this point will, I hope, lead to a clearer understanding of the liabilities of the Humean picture and pave the way to an appreciation of an Aristotelian alternative. And my alternative is Aristotelian in roughly the way Lewis's view is Humean. I mean, you could, uh, whether Hume, act, the historical view, uh, Hume actually held this view, Galen Strawson becomes livid <laughs> if you ascribe this uh, Lewis, if you call Lewis's Humeanism, Humeanism. Uh, and uh, 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 any Aristotelian would feel the same way about my use of um, Aristotelianism. Incidentally, I forgot, I have five copies of this paper that I would like to hand out for anyone who might have language issues or hard of hearing or anything like that. Please take them. I'll just, I meant to, I meant to do that at the outset. I'm still on a daze. I'm still on a Boeing 747. Okay. Few philosophers have had a greater impact on contemporary metaphysics than David Lewis. This is especially so for the metaphysics of modality. Philosophers today find it entirely natural to say that something is possible if it occurs in at least one alternative universe, necessary if it occurs in all or all pertinent universes. It is true that, had you dropped the vase you were clutching, it would have shattered if, if in the nearest, most similar universes in which you or someone very like you drops the vase or someone, something, a very similar vase, it shatters. Universes are infinite in number. In some, laws of nature differ from those in our universe. In some, donkeys talk. In some, you and I were never born. In some, old 97 makes it into Spencer on time. A minority of philosophers who invoke alternative universes side with Lewis in regarding the, the, the alternatives as fully real. Most do not. Most regard talk of alternative universes as a façon de parler, a useful, even indispensable in regimenting modal concepts, but not to be taken literally. There's a quotation from Frank Jackson uh, on, the, on the handout, which Jackson says, um, uh, possible worlds have paid their dues, which leads me to think that we actually owe them something. <laughs> they've, they've paid off. We, we're, we're in their debt. For these philosophers, the ones that think that talk about possible worlds or alternative universes is not to be taken literally. The you who drops the vase in a nearby universe is the you who forebears dropping dropping it in this universe, the actual universe. For Lewis, in contrast, there's just the one you. Other universes include counterparts of you and the vase, replicas of you and the vase, the careers of which closely resemble yours and the vases, or do so for a time, then diverge. Notice first that none of Lewis's alternative universes, including ours, could have been other, other than it in fact is. Each alternative universe is a determinate, four-dimensional, Humean mosaic, and I'll talk more about this presently, of qualities. The universe we inhabit, one universe among many, is what it is, 
it could not have been otherwise. As Yogi Berra might have, have put it, had our universe been otherwise, it wouldn't have been our universe. The difficulty now is to accommodate modal discourse, which evidently serves us well, both in science and in everyday life, and to do so in a way that makes modal assertions something more than mere projections. To do so uh, uh, in a way that makes modal assertions straightforwardly true or false. Might the laws of nature have been different? Might you have failed to exist? If the universe is simply is sorry, if the universe simply is what it is and is so of necessity, such questions could make no sense. Yet they seem to make sense. Indeed, they seem to admit of empirical confirmation and dis, or dif, disconfirmation. How could this be so? Lewis provides guidance for those who accept a Humean ontology. In part, owing to the influence of Lewis, philosophers today regard contingency as easy. Contingency rules. Um, the universe is contingent, provided there's at least one alternative universe. A constituent or feature of the universe is contingent, provided there is at least one alternative universe that differs from our universe with respect to that con constituent or feature. Given that there is no shortage of alternative universes, near universal contingency is assured. This picture of unrelenting contingency, however, must be understood in concert with Lewis's doctrine of Humean supervenience. Now here comes the long quotation from David Lewis. Humean supervenience is named in honor of the greater denier of necessary connections. It is the doctrine that all there is to the world is a vast mosaic of local matters of particular fact, just one little thing after another but it is no part of the thesis that these local matters are mental. You might think that's an odd thing to say, but in a minute you'll see, I think, why he says that. We have geometry, a system of external relations of spatio-temporal distance between points, maybe points of space-time itself, maybe point-sized bits of matter or ether or fields, maybe both. And at all these points, we have local qualities, perfectly natural, intrinsic properties, which need nothing bigger than a point to be instantiated. For short, we have an arrangement of qualities, and that is all. There is no difference without a difference in the arrangement of qualities. All else supervenes on that. So, on Lewis's view, all the truths about the universe are made true by this Humean mosaic. Notice that there is no mention here of alternative universes. This is because modal truths, truths about what might have been or what could or couldn't be, are made true by the actual arrangement of qualities and the similarity or dissimilarity of this arrangement to alternative arrangements. This point will be important in what follows. The passage just quoted echoes a sentiment voiced by one of Lewis's teachers at Harvard. D.C. Williams. Williams puts it this way. This is the next long quotation, and I want you to notice the similarities between the quotation from Williams, Lewis's teacher, and what Lewis says. Lewis's metaphysics is just Williams's metaphysics. The whole world, I take, except um, <laughs> Williams is a bit more flowery. Williams did English as an undergraduate. So. Was going to be a poet, I think. 
The whole world, I take at least as a working hypothesis, absolutely all there is, is a four-dimension plenum of qualia in relations. And by qualia, he doesn't mean mental things. He means qualities. He's using it in the traditional sense. Eternally actual, through and through. Its fundamental pattern, which all other structure presupposes, is that of whole and part. The big it is not merely infinitely divisible or virtually infinitely, but infinitely divided in the sense that it is the sum of countless actual parts, countlessly including, overlapping, and excluding one another, each part and each whole as genuinely real and individual. In the cardinal logical and ontological respects, as any whole which includes it right up to the world all. <laughs> what a sentence. Sorry. And as any part which is included in it right down to the ultimate indivisibles which have no proper parts, if such there be. Each of the parts thus intrinsically individuated, identical with itself and distinct from everything else, each thing is related to each other part of thing and to itself in two further fundamental ways. By location, that is, the distance and directions which compose the four-dimensional spread, and by resemblance with the proviso uh, in default of a better, uh, better inclusive word that resemblances covers both likenesses and unlikenesses. Okay, that's the end of the quotation. So we've, I'm glad we've gotten that behind us now. <laughs> uh, on such a view, there are no metaphysical constraints on possibility. This just, the, it, it just is what it is. End of story. <clears throat> the only sense in which something is possible or impossible is its being logically or linguistically, maybe, I don't know, possible or impossible. On such a view, there are no grades of possibility or necessity. Modality is univocal and supremely unrevealing as to the nature of the universe, which is what it is, neither more nor less. The difficulty now is to find room for ordinary modal discourse. We commonly distinguish what is logically possible, what is consistently statable, from what is really possible, what is in fact possible. You could think of Lewis as aiming to provide a viable account aimed at making sense of these and various other modal distinctions within a Humean framework. That's the crucial thing. Lewis' proposal is that we can distinguish merely logical from natural or real possibility via the thought that something is naturally possible when its, it, uh, its difference from what is the case falls within acceptable limits. The limits are set by, among other factors, entrenched scientific theories. This, he thinks, accords with ordinary ways of thinking about possibilities. Earlier, I noted that few philosophers who appealed to alternative universes in discussing metaphysical topics regard the alternatives as real. Multiverses aside, few think of the universe we inhabit as merely one among many. Lewis, in contrast, professes what he calls modal realism, according to which alternative universes are as real as the one in which we happen to reside. And a quotation, I think, um, uh, this isn't on the handout. There's another quotation in which he says this, which is on the handout. I advocate, he says, a thesis of a plurality of worlds, which holds that our world is but one among many. The doctrine has struck most philosophers and all non-philosophers as eccentric and unappealing. I'm going to propose a way of understanding Lewis that might make modal realism, 
or something in the neighborhood of modal real realism more palatable, even for a Humean interested in accommodating more modal discourse, attractive. Suppose you followed Lewis's Hume in thinking that there are no necessary connections in the universe. Considered four-dimensionally, the universe is an arrangement of pixel-like qualitative bits, each wholly independent of the rest. The universe and everything in the universe is what it is. Every day in scientific discourse, however, is rife with modal locutions. We, spoke of, we speak of what would happen if you were to drop the vase, or an electron were to move into the vicinity of another electron. We recognize what might have happened had Steve backed off old 97's throttle on approaching the Danville trestle. We ponder what could and could not occur, and we distinguish logical possibility or impossibility from what is in fact or really or naturally possible or impossible. What in the universe could make such locutions true or false? What resources does the universe provide to justify modal assertions? Modal dis discourse reveals something about the universe, but what? We accept, reasonably it would seem, that you could have failed to exist, or had a different, had different hair color, or been a different height. The elusiveness of truth makers for these claims, however, apparently calls them into question. One possibility is that such claims are rarely, if ever, warranted. A second possibility is that the claims are engineered to, to express not modal flat facts, there are no such facts for a human, but facts about similarity. This is Lewis. There is as well a third possibility. When you assert that you might have had another height, for instance, you do not take yourself to be calling on details of the circumstances of your genetic and biological development. Rather, you're calling on causal dispositional features of your developmental milieu. You tell a companion that the ball would roll if you nudged it. In saying this, you're expressing a belief about the ball's capacities or powers. More precisely, your belief concerns the ball's powers and its circumstances and its circumstances, as those circumstances bear on manifestations of the ball's powers. I mention this possibility in order to set it aside for the moment. In embracing Hume, Lewis foregoes powers. Truthmakers for assertions, such as the ball would roll, could not be powers possessed by balls. What is the alternative? If you are a Humean, you only, you're, you only appeal, your only appeal, I have a typo, I can't believe it. Your only appeal is to similarity. The ball resembles similar balls known to have rolled when nudged in similar circumstances. Lacking powers, similarities is all you have. When an, on a particular occasion you think, there but for the grace of God go I, you recognize that the circumstances that led to the plight of some poor unfortunately, unfortunate are disturbingly similar to your own. Enter alternative universes. Think of the space of logical possibilities as comprising universes differing from ours and from one another in one or more respects. The structure of this space is a wholly objective affair. It is what it is, and its constituents are what they are quite independently of any thoughts you might have about it or its constituents. You can consider things being less or more different 
from the way they are. This provides an ordering of circumstances, an ordering of universes across a similarity space of universes. Now when you think, were I to stir this sugar into my cup of hot tea, the sugar would dissolve, you're expressing your confidence that sugar dissolves in hot tea, a confidence based on the similarity of the envisaged occurrence to ones with which you are already familiar, either from personal experience or by hearsay. Here's what Lewis says. Listen carefully. And now this um, uh, is the penultimate quotation there. The character of our world makes the counterfactual true. But it is only by bringing in other worlds into the story that we can say in any concise way what character it takes to make the counterfactual true. The other worlds provide a frame of reference whereby we can characterize our world. So the role of alternative universes is to provide a frame of reference. More generally, appeals to alternative universes equip us to spell out what we are doing when we make modal assertions about the universe as we find it. What of Lewis's trademark modal realism? His assertion that the alternative universes are as real as the universe in which we find ourselves. And this is the last quotation on the handout, but I'm not that close to the end of the paper, I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> um, when I profess realism about possible worlds, I mean to be taken literally. Possible worlds are what they are and not some other thing. If asked what, uh, what sort of thing they are, I cannot give the kind of reply my questioner probably wants, probably expects. That is a proposal to reduce possible worlds to something else. I can only ask him to admit what he know, know, that he knows what sort of thing our actual world is, and then explain that possible worlds are more things of that sort, differing not in kind, but only in what goes on in them. Put yourself in the place of someone with Humean sympathies, self-consciously advancing a modal claim. In entertaining thoughts of alternative situations, you're not thinking of purely imagined, imaginary or fictitious situations. You're not thinking of Oz or Middle Earth, but of situations in a perfectly objective similarity space of situations that includes your own. Lewis accepts that modal assertions have associated truth conditions and that it is perfectly objective whether these conditions obtain. But the role of the alternative universes is not to serve as truth makers for modal statements. The truth makers are to be found among features of the universe we inhabit. These features are objectively similar or dissimilar to various alternative situations. If you tie realism to truth, then this is realism, or a kind of realism, about the alternative situations. So you have, if you have anything at all, it generates a similarity space. And the, what I'm saying is, the, what I'm suggesting is the universes are regions in this, in this subjective similarity space. Um, is this all out modal realism? Probably not, but it's close. Once you have the universe, the actual universe, the alternative universes are fixed. Their standing as more or less similar counterparts to the universe is per is perfectly objective. If you consider just the space of alternative universes, the status of our universe in that space of alternatives is in no way privileged. From this, from this perspective, in, th in this frame of mind, all the universes are on a par. Modal real realism on the cheap, or what 
Keith Campbell might have called painless modal realism. <clears throat> Moving Lewis's humanism temporarily to the back burner, reflect once more on contingency and on the fact that it is commonly supposed that contingency is easy, necessity hard. An ordinary truth about the universe is contingent until proved otherwise. Recall two examples mentioned already. You might not have been born. The laws of nature might, not, might have been different. You and the laws of nature are contingent. But why think that? <laughs> Could you have failed to have been born? That's hard to say. For, for you not to have been born, the universe would have had to be different in myriad ways. But could it have been different in all or even very many of those ways? Do not say the answer is easy. There are alternative universes, possible worlds in which you were not born. That is just to assert that your birth is contingent, the very point at issue. What of the laws of nature? Are the laws contingent? I have no idea. The question is a broadly empirical one, not something a philosopher is in a position to ascertain just by imagining things behaving differently than they do. Claims about contingency must earn their keep. This is especially so when something's being contingent plays a su substantive role in a philosophical argument. My first point, then, is that our access to truth makers for modal truths pertaining to the universe is apparently fallible no less so than our access to truth makers for ordinary non-modal truths about the universe. A second point concerns the character of relations among distinct states of the universe. Scores of influential philosophers and their disciples follow Lewis and Lewis's Hume in thinking that distinct entities are, ent entities are entirely loose and separate. Even philosophers who doubt that this is always so exhibit a bias in favor of contingency. Although the, the claim that A and B are necessarily connected requires defense, the claim that A and B are only con contingently related is awarded a free pass. Just it comes for free, I can say. Con contingent, it's just contingent that I'm standing here, clearly. That, don't I look contingent? I look contingent, right? <laughs> Think of how I would look if I were necessary. <laughs> when you engage in serious ontology, however, there are no free passes. Philosophers of a Humean bent point to causal relations as obviously paradigmatically contingent. Causes and effects are clearly loose and separate. Really? Although I will not endeavor to argue the point in detail here, I believe there are excellent reasons to think that causation is robustly non-contingent, non at least if causal relations are understood as bringings about. I'm just going to say something about this, I'm not going to go into detail. Suppose A's, bringing about, A's bring about B's, but only sometimes. It would be natural to think that when an A does bring about a B, the A does so with the help of some third factor, C, missing in cases in which B fails to occur. So it is really A's, A together with C that brings about B. But suppose that this is not so. Suppose that, A, that A's bring about B's on some occasions, but not others. And when they do, there's no further factor, no hidden variable. When A occurs accompanied by a B, Nothing differs from a case in which A occurs in the absence of a B. In what sense, then, does the A bring about 
a bee, the bee, does it bring it about, right? I don't get it. I regard these cases of the latter sort as close to incoherent. I agree that the B follows the A, the B is there. But the idea that the A brought it about, I don't, I just don't understand it. You will not be impressed if you're used to characterizing causation in terms of counterfactual dependence or in terms of probability raising. If you want to replace causal talk with talk of counterfactuals, however, I invite you to explain what you think the truth makers are for the pertinent counterfactuals. If you think of causality as probability raising, I suspect that you're thinking of very complex cases in which it is difficult or impossible to comprehend endless contributing factors. If not, then I invite you to explain what happens when a cause does bring about an effect. Of course, you could deny that causation is bringing about. People have done that. Um, and such people won't be moved by anything that I'm going to say. Doesn't physics tell us that, that physical processes or some physical processes are non-deterministic? When a radium atom decays, it does so non-deterministically. There's no cause of its decaying when it does. Let this be so. In that case, what physics tells us is that some occurrences are spontaneous. Some events are uncaused. Some movers unmoved. Here we arrive at a source of genuine contingency, okay? Not just messing around sitting in the armchair contingency, but looks like real contingency, namely spontaneity. If the decay of a radium atom at a particular moment is spontaneous, it is contingent that the atom decayed at that moment. If the Big Bang was, in fact, the result of a spontaneous fluctuation in the vacuum, then the universe is contingent. At least the universe's contingent, provided a distinct fluctuation, would have spawned a distinct universe. Notice, however, that whether any of these things is so is not something that could be ascertained by conjuring alternative universes. There is a fact of the matter, although perhaps one we are, could never be in a position to discern. Let me pull the preceding comments together. Suppose that causation, just suppose, is flatly non-contingent. Start with the idea that the causal structure of the universe is a vast network of causal interactions, a network, an evolving three-dimensional web, not a one-dimensional chain. Nothing within this causal web is contingent. Now introduce here and there spontaneous, that is genuinely contingent, occurrences. Contingency in the form of uncaused causes and their effects proliferates throughout the system. If the Big Bang was itself spontaneous, or if it was the product of some spontaneous occurrence, then the universe as a whole is contingent. Ruffly, roughly, something, your birth for instance, is contingent if the conditions responsible for it include spontaneous elements. Is it contingent that you were born? Well, if the universe is contingent, if the Big Bang was, was spontaneous, then everything in the universe would inherit the universe's contingency. It is another question whether the laws of nature are contingent and whether given the Big Bang, given the universe, an occurrence in the universe is contingent. If physics is right, if spontaneous occurrences are ubiquitous, uh, and if such occurrences breed contingency, it is a good bet that your birth is contingent. It does not follow, however, that features you appear to possess accidentally your determinate height, your hair color, your tastes and talents are contingent in the sense that you 
might have been different in these respects. That will depend on features of the unimaginably complex causal matrix from which you emerged. You might suspect that my harping on contingency misses the point. The universe is what it is, to be sure. But there could have been another, perhaps very different universe, or even no universe at all. But what warrants this thought? What reason do you have for thinking some other universe could have existed in place of this one? Whether that is so is not something you can simply eyeball or stipulate. What constraints, what, what constraints does being, you know, being place on universes? Our best attempts to answer this question are going to require appeals to fundamental physics. But there's no guarantee that answers will be forthcoming. Under the circumstances, the appropriate attitude is a suspension of judgment and a recognition that contingency must be earned. So much for the ontological preliminaries. Much more would need to be said to make any of this fully respectable, or even a little bit respectable. Perhaps, however, you will at least agree that if modal truths are made true by features of the universe, truth makers for these truths are going to be elusive, difficult, or at times impossible to pin down. But now we face an apparent puzzle. We seem happy to endorse counterfactual claims and accept the contingency of all sorts of conditions that could easily turn out to be anything but. Modal discourse plays an important role in everyday and scientific descriptions and explanations of goings-on around us. We are apparently justified in many of our modal assertions. We accept many such assertions as true, but it is hard to see how this could be so or how we could ever be warranted in thinking it so given what I've said about the elusive character of truth-makers for modal truths. For a, Humean, for a Humean, modal discourse must be founded on similarities. Earlier, I briefly mentioned one non-Humean alternative according to which modal discourse is made true by powerful ways the universe is. The time has come to look more closely at this alternative. Suppose I'm right. Suppose the contingency is not easy. The thought that the universe, or some feature of the universe, is contingent expresses a substantive thesis in need of defense. Physics gives us reason to think that some occurrences are uncaused, spontaneous. Spontaneity, I suggested, is one source, perhaps the only source, of genuine contingency. The universe is contingent if the universe resulted from a spontaneous occurrence a cataclysmic, uncaused fluctuation in the quantum vacuum, for instance. The universe might or might not be contingent. The jury is still out. Even if the universe were not contingent, particular features of the universe would themselves be contingent to the extent that they issue from spontaneous occurrences, the spontaneous decay of unstable elements, for instance, or spontaneous oscillations in the vacuum, or space itself. If this is right, the answer to the question whether the universe or some particular feature of the universe is contingent would be non-trivial. Let us suppose what we cannot but suppose, that the universe includes substances and properties. Okay, so this is just basic ontology 101. Uh, properties, and I say there are substances and substances have properties. Properties are fully particular ways substances are, and every substance is some way or other. Substance and property are correlative categories. This much we know. 
Okay, we know this. We could argue about what the substances are, we could argue about the properties, and you could pretend that you don't believe in either one, but uh, we won't go there. You know, you just ha you have to start someplace, really. Um, what we do not know, or know with certainty, is what the substances and properties are. For this, we need fundamental physics, which remains a work in progress. Williams, D.C. Williams, the one I quoted earlier, and Lewis's properties are particular inert qualities. On a rival Aristotelian conception, properties are powerful qualities. So the, on their view, the qualities are inert, okay? So take the same view and make the qualities powerful, okay? Or a similar view. Properties are powerful qualities, qualities of substances that empower those substances in distinctive ways. The dye is cubical, it's a cubical dye. In virtue of being cubical, cubical, the dye would tumble or slide, not smoothly roll down an incline, would make a concave square impression in the carpet, would look cubical, would feel cubical. The dye's cubicity is a quality but not merely a quality, the dye's cubicity is a powerful quality. The dye would, what the dye would do in various circumstances depends on its entire complement of powers and on powers possessed by everything with which it interacts. The dye's powers would manifest themselves in particular ways with particular kinds of reciprocal power. Such manifestings are continuous symmetrical affairs. Think of a spoonful of sugar dissolving in a cup of hot tea. Talked about this earlier. The sugar and the tea interact cooperatively to yield a dissolving. The dissolving is the mutual manifesting of powers of the tea and the sugar, and undoubtedly much else beside, working together. Every manifesting of this kind constitutes a causal nexus. To the extent that causings are bringings about, causing is continuous and symmetrical. There is a before and an after, of course. The sugar must be placed in the tea before dissolving occurs. Once the dissolving occurs, the sugar is dissolved in the tea. The tea sweetened. There is a state of the universe prior to the dissolving, the dissolving, and the state of the universe once the dissolving has occurred. So, yeah. <clears throat> so long as we are mired in a Humean frame of reference, it is difficult to appreciate the implications of the introduction of powers. A power's identity depends on what the power is a power for. In most cases, a power is a power for different kinds of manifestation with different kinds of reciprocal manifestation partner, different kinds of reciprocal power. Suppose that A is a power to manifest itself in way M with a B. So we're going to have this A. Oh. M is a mutual manifestation of A and B. Then. If that's true, then if you have A and B suitably related, the sugar and the tea, you have M. If you, their identity as powers depends on what their power is for. So if you've got them in the appropriate um, relationship, you've got the manifestation. This means that the manifesting of powers is internally related to those powers. If you have the relata, you have the relation. The case is under-described and on that account likely to mislead. It seems possible to introduce additional factors that will block or prevent A, from yield, A and B from yielding M. We can interfere with it. I mean, the causal literature is full of cases in which we've got interveners and 
breaker uppers and blockers and antidotes and all sorts of things. Um, by adding a particular chemical to a cup of tea, you might prevent the sugars dissolving. You have A and B, but no M. So how can I say that having the A and B is, uh, if you've got the A and the B, you've got the M. Well, I said it was underdescribed. I was taking liberties when I said it. Uh, you do not have nothing, however, when you when we're, we're putting the we're putting the substance in the in the tea that will prevent the um, um, sugar from dissolving in the tea. Uh, you do not have nothing, however. The addition of new powers, you've introduced something that's introduced new powers on the scene, and now you've got a new kind of mutual manifestation, one that does not include the sugars dissolving. Given the powers on hand, however, you have a particular kind of manifestation. Instead of thinking of the universe as a four-dimensional distribution of infinite qualities, think of it as a distribution of powerful qualities. The universe unfolds as the powers mutually manifest themselves, yielding new distributions of powers that mutually manifest themselves, yielding in turn further distributions of powers. Now stir in a measure of spontaneity by including powers, the manifestation of which requires no reciprocal partner. Once spontaneous manifestings enter the picture, contingency propagates throughout the system. The universe, so considered, provides all the truth makers you need for, truths, for, for the truths that have truth makers. This is Aristotelian supervenience. Whither modality? For Lewis and Williams, given that the universe is as it, as it is, its features are in no, its features are in no way contingent. It's, it, it is, it's, it's a necessary, an, uh, it's a necessary part of a necessary object, you might say, um, or part of a necessary object. Um, for this universe to exist is for it to have these features, features it could not have failed to have. The Humean universe as a whole is contingent if its existence is a brute fact. Given the universe, however, and its, fe its features are contingent only in being independent from one another. This is the Humean picture. No feature itself necessitates or is necessitated by any other feature. The alternative is to allow internal connections among features of the universe. This is what happens when you replace infinite qualities with powerful qualities. New features of the universe cease to be independent. Successive states of the universe are determined by their predecessors. If you have the states, you have their successors, except when you don't. Physics tells us that some powers manifest themselves spontaneously. The occurrence of spontaneous manifestings of powers inf infects the whole with contingencies. I'm almost done. Last summarizing section. I've sketched a way of understanding Lewis's deployment of alternative universes that yields a human understanding of the semantics of everyday modal discourse. And I have offered an Aristotelian competitor. The Aristotelian option, however, appears to require a kind of two-level account of modality. On the one hand, there are the deep modal truths, made by, true by ways the universe is. On the other hand, there are the everyday modal truths, the aim of which is much more, is more modest. Such discourse expresses beliefs about the contributions various powers make to their possessors. You might think that a two-level conception of modal discourse would be a liability. Lewis has just the one, supremely parsimonious level. But is this right? 
Oh, in Lewis's view, the deep truth about the universe is that it is, is, is that it is as it is. Against this background, Lewis offers a semantics for modal discourse grounded in similarity. As I see it, the difference between the modal picture offered by Lewis and the alternative sketched here lies in their respective ontologies of, of the universe as we find it. Lewis's universe comprises a de facto distribution of simple, infinite qualities. The alternative is a universe of powerful qualities. Such a universe provides the resources to account for and make sense of both levels of modal discourse. Lewis, of course, can do the same. It all boils down to the relative plausibility of the two competing conceptions of the universe, the Humean conception of a universe comprising inert passive qualities and an Aristotelian universe of interrelated powers. And here, there is no contest. Thank you very much.